Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. This week on The Agenda, shooting for the earth. We speak to young entrepreneurs about their incredible plans to repair the planet. As the world struggles to hit its climate goals, many are looking to the young to solve global problems. The Earthshot Prize was initiated by Britain's Prince William to give young entrepreneurs a much needed boost in their bids to save the planet, awarding $1.2 million to five eco-friendly businesses every year. Now, one of the winners in 2022 was Charlotte Magai, a Kenyan whose company, Makuru Stoves, aims to reduce emissions from cooking. And she joins me now. Charlotte, absolute pleasure to have you on the agenda. Now, you're, you were born in Nairobi, pretty humble beginnings. You were orphaned very young. Tell us a little bit about your life then. I grew up in Mukuru, um, which is one of the biggest slums in Nairobi. And by the age of 10 years, I'd lost both my parents. And at 16, I ended up becoming a teenage mom. And so I drop out of school to figure out a way to friend for her and I get a job selling charcoal. And using that, um, coupled with an inefficient stove, she suffered very severe burn injuries when she turned two. And that is how the idea for Mukuru Clean Stoves was born. I wanted to build more stable stoves for my community. Yeah, I mean, charcoal for, for fuel, that's um, pretty dangerous stuff. Um, and, and you're saying that's what inspired you to, to create your special stove and to build your business? Yes, yes, that is, it is what inspired me. I mean, about 86% of Kenyans alone still use um, charcoal or other inefficient um, cooking technologies, and they suffer detrimental health um, impacts. Like, for instance, about 22,000 Kenyans die every single year from household air pollution. And so I wanted to build a more stable stove to limit the risk of burns in children, but then quickly realized that the bigger problem was household air pollution and the fact that people were using harmful solid fuel to cook. So at what point did you think, you know, I've got an idea. I, I, I think, I really think it's, it's going to work. And then how did you go about making it happen? Um, so my daughter got burnt um, in 2012 and the business was officially registered in 2017. So in between, I was still in school and when I was in school, I was always bothered by, you know, the burns in children at that very tender age because a lot of my friends had also gotten burnt. But while studying, I realized that household air pollution was the problem. So this was while still in school, trying to figure out what else can be done to fix this problem and going back home, you know, taking those long walks from school going back home and seeing that people are still selling these stoves, I figured I could try to make a better stove. And that was around um, 2015. And so obviously we still didn't get into it um, just then because um, I wasn't an entrepreneur um, at heart, so I didn't know even how to begin. But then watching other entrepreneurs were solving some, you know, very small or big problems within our community and trying to emulate what they, are, they were doing. So in 2017, I decided to just go for it. I opened a small um, shop within the slum that I was living in, in Mukuru, and would outsource. So we designed this stove that the point of it all was to enable households to use less fuel because it would decrease the amount of um, charcoal or the amount of fuel that you would be using um, to cook. Now, I know you're saying it was a process for you and you were absorbing everything that was around you, but, but 
let's talk about timing because you know mitigating the impacts of climate change is, is very now, isn't it? It's very of the moment. Did that help? That has helped tremendously, really, because a lot of the people who suffer the impact of household air pollution or a lot of issues that um, are faced by low-income communities, apart from the fact that they cannot address it due to poverty, they just do not understand just how the impacts of it are very detrimental. And so right now, seeing in the news every day that the way we cook, the air we breathe, and how that affects, you know, our environment, how that is related to flooding, you know, um, in a different um, country, and how you could help change that has really helped us push, you know, the agenda of people using improved cookstoves. And then another way we do it is because, again, we realize that for low-income communities, even when they realize that this is a problem, they still cannot afford to address it. So how do you build a solution that you can then educate them the importance of, but then provide them with a product that they can afford? So we use recycled materials, we make them in Kenya, we distribute through, through local women business owners, um, and we, we sell them a $10 stove. Um, and this is a stove that even if they're able to save for just two or three weeks, then they're able to afford because these are households that earn maybe forty to hundred dollars monthly income. What else is going on in the market? I mean, is there healthy competition, or have you filled a gaping hole? Um, there is competition, but not enough. I mean, um, the, the improved cookstoves that we have in the market right now are so expensive that they are targeted to middle-income earners who, in a sense, can still afford um, cleaner cooking technologies um, like solar um, within their household. So when they buy a $50 stove and you try to sell it to someone who $50 is their monthly income within that household, they cannot afford it. So the biggest competitor for a stove like Mukuru is actually the traditional stove because it is cheaper. So you want that, that is the problem that we are trying to solve. So not necessarily fighting with international cooktop brands who are selling their stoves at exorbitant rates, but their problem, the stove that caused the problem, the stove that caused my daughter to get banned, that is the problem that we are trying to address. And we do that right now in a sense, we're trying to reduce the cost of our stoves to ensure that communities really are able to make that switch and move away from stove stacking. Um, and, and that is using the traditional stove along with our improved cook stove just because they feel the traditional stove is a bit cheaper um, to maintain. So providing them with a stove that is affordable and working towards reducing the cost of that so that everybody in the last mile who needs that stove is able to get access to it. Costs are a big thing, isn't it? Because you, you could say that innovation is always expensive. Um, it sounds like that's, that's been a, a bit of a bump for you, a bit of a barrier to get the message across and get the product out there. Yeah, so innovation is expensive, but then you can innovate around the problem. You can innovate and try to fix this problem of high costs, right? Because we can come up with this really brilliant technology and try to really change lives or actually save lives. But if those people cannot afford it, then the, your innovation becomes um, a useless product. So I believe that as innovators, as entrepreneurs, as people who are trying to fight for our environment, how are we providing solutions that are also affordable to the last man? So coming up with ideas like using recycled metal, knowing fully well that this is going to reduce the cost, or local production, or distribution using you know distribution channels that are traditional, primarily there, and everybody has access to, sort of reduces the cost of that product and ensures that everybody um, can get access to that product.
Something else I wanted to ask you is that it, look, it's a female-founded business, and I wondered if that was by design, that as well as saving the planet, you wanted to empower marginalised women. So when we came up with the idea for Mukuru Clean Stoves, we had to figure out who this solution was for. And quickly you realize that the people who are most affected by household air pollution, by high poverty rates, by flooding, by climate change are primarily women and children. So they're the ones who are best placed to distribute this um, solution. They're the ones who are best placed to build it. Like our stoves has gone through like different elements of change. And this has come from having artisans who are women building the stoves and letting you know this is a product market miss, not a fit. And this is how you can change it to ensure that the next woman is able to use it. Um, so we decided that at Mukuru Clean Stoves, we were going to build a stove that benefits the life of women and children. And we were going to empower women to be the ones to build that solution and distribute that solution and champion for that solution. And it, it has worked wonders for us. We realized that when you're working with local women business owners, they have small shops. They're selling their tailors, you know, their grocery, uh, grocery sellers, but they cook when they go back home and they can pitch a product like that. They can tell you the benefits of this better than anybody else because they understand the impact of it better than anybody else. So this is by design and this is a model that we will continue to use because I believe that there is no solution that should come into any market without involving the people that it primarily, uh, primarily affects. Now you've said that you learned from entrepreneurs around you uh, in the villages, in, in the towns that you walked through. Um, how do you think you can use your experience um, and learnings to help other local businesses? I believe just even even if you don't help on a large scale, telling your story and, and, and ensuring that local women business owners or small girls who want to start small businesses to impact lives in climate, in health, in you know, um, girls' education, learn my story and understand where really I started this from, why I felt it was important for me and why I kept you know, being persistent really, really goes a long way. So you can provide mentorship that's very, very important and opportunities for them to be able to learn. But telling your story, I find that stories are very powerful. Because if right now there's a young girl at Mukuru and she learns about what I was able to achieve from Mukuru, even after having a baby and dropping out of school at 16, then she sees that it is possible for her to achieve her dream, to impact her community and really to change something in the world. Charlotte, what was it like to win the Earthshot Prize? You used like a past tense and it still feels very like new. It feels like we won the Earthshot Prize um, yesterday. It was, it was mind blowing, it was unbelievable, but it was also very, very validating because we have been working at this for so long and in a world where a lot of young people are innovating, you never quite feel like your solution is that important or that significant. So to get that nod from the Astro Prize and the financing obviously that comes with it was, it has been the big, biggest honor for Mukuru Clean Stoves and it places a very big responsibility on us now because the Astro Prize is watching and now that impact that we wanted to um, achieve, there has to be a 10X on it. And we have to actually ensure that a lot of people, not just in Kenya, are able to benefit from the Mukuru Clean Stoves thanks to the prize. And let's talk about that prize, $1.2 million. How are you going to use that to, to scale up um, and grow your business? 
Oh man, pretty very interesting things um, coming up um, out of Mukuru because of that short prize and their global alliance. It's not just the prize money, that's the thing with the short prize, is the connections, is the fact that they're making introductions to try to get people in to help us scale this solution. And our dream was always to access the entire African market. But it's no longer a dream. You know, we are building our next factory in Ghana. We're moving to this year. We're going to South Africa um, next year, distributing within these three large regions um, in Africa, thanks to the Astro Prize. And because of them, we decided to do a LEAP project. And, and, and what, uh, our LEAP is called Waste to Fuel for Stoves because Africa has a lot of farmers who have other resources but not necessarily cash so through the leap that we're doing with the astro prizes they're selling us their agricultural waste we're using that to make sustainable briquettes and selling them back uh, to them and, and they don't need to use cash to buy the stove or to buy the briquettes they can use their agricultural waste and we are doing this across um, Africa, starting with Kenya, obviously. And then also we just got into this really beautiful space where we're getting into malaria research as well. So using our um, fuels, the briquettes that we're going to be making to fight malaria. Like Kenya is the biggest producer of pyrethrin, which is the strongest insecticide to fight malaria. So we are doing research to infuse that into our fuels and distributing it across Africa, you know, enabling people who are already fighting malaria to fight malaria when people are cooking. So, because according to the CDC, children and women are catching malaria before they go to bed. So even when they have mosquito nets, they still catch malaria. But by using a mukuru briquette, those rates are going to be dramatically reduced um, after this research is done. And this is all thanks to the answer prize. So really very exciting and interesting stuff. Charlotte Magai, you are an inspiration. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been an honour. Plastic is one of the biggest environmental issues facing our planet. Every minute of the day, the equivalent of a truckload of plastic is dumped into the world's oceans. But we can speak now to another Earthshot Prize winner who's determined to tackle that issue at source, Pierre Paslier, co-founder of Notplar. First of all, can you give us a few facts about plastic litter in the ocean, the scale of the problem? Yeah, as you just said, uh, we just end up dumping a huge amount of, of waste in our oceans, in, in nature. Um, I think that like every year, that's about 318 tons of that material that like escapes um, our, our, our control and very much uh, ends up accumulating because unlike natural materials, it doesn't break down, so it just keeps on adding up and up and up. And uh, the consequences on marine life, on our own health, are, are starting to become really kind of like evident. So we have to find alternatives to the material that is very performant, but that comes with a very complex kind of life. But why isn't recycling enough on its own as a solution? The problem with recycling is that, first of all, with the billions we've invest, invested into this solution for the past 50 years, we are only at about 9% of recycling rate for, for plastic worldwide. It just doesn't work. We've never made it work, although we've kind of like invested so heavily on this. And the main reason why it keeps on being pushed is that it's the only solution that makes brands and kind of like plastic users feel like they can continue to just push the same products out there because of the promise that we will bring this material back into the, into the system. But realistically, plastics come in all sorts of different uh, like, uh, like forms. There's a lot of different chemistries. When you recycle, you end up 
you end up having a blend that is very complex to deal with. Um, and that means that it's very hard to have a material that has equivalent properties as what you started with. And you just slowly downgrade the, the material. And on top of that, you're using a lot of efforts, a lot of energy, and eventually a lot of money to get that material back. Uh, we should absolutely try to do our best with recycling. But let's face it, it is not the solution that's going to solve problem. So let's talk about how, how you came up with your concept, because when you were experimenting in, in your kitchen, did you have a, a solution to the plastics problem in the ocean in mind? We certainly wanted to create something that would feel a lot more in sync with nature. Um, and actually, those early prototypes that we uh, prepared in our kitchen were trying to create a man-made fruit, something that you would find in nature, packaging that would not feel like an industrial material, but something that is a little bit more like the skin of an apple or uh, of a tomato, because actually this is what fruits do, right? They have this layer of packaging that keeps the content uh, fresh, but also that disappear very quickly um, without staying for, for hundreds of years in the environment. So that was really the ultimate uh, inspiration. And little we knew that uh, seaweed was potentially a very good material for this and for a lot of other reasons. Some of the seaweed that we use grow up to a meter per day, so it's one of the most renewable materials on the planet. It doesn't use fresh water or fertilizer, um, and we can make packaging with it. Um, and the great thing is that this packaging, if it ends up in the wrong place, because humans haven't collected it properly, it will naturally break down in a matter of weeks without creating any problem for nature, because it's been around for a billion years. Um, so nature knows exactly what to do in your place. So what exactly is NOPLA? You know, how does it work? How, how are you going to use it? So NOPLA uh, is both the name of our company, but also the material that we make from, from seaweed. We apply it into different uh, applications from little bubbles that we fill with uh, like uh, energy, water, like water or drinks for marathons, uh, ketchup sachets. Um, now we're doing takeaway boxes, like a burger box where Cardboard is coated with a varnish of our material to make it resist the grease and the moisture of the food. Uh, we have papers and films. So the goal is to bring seaweed on the map of packaging materials so that we can stop using as much plastic as we do. Um, and the idea of like the material is that um, regardless of where it ends up, it will never create uh, a problem for nature. So it's naturally biodegradable. Uh, these types of products are also recyclable. Um, in some cases, it's even edible. So it really is behaving just like the peel of the food. Oh, so you can eat your takeaway and you can eat the pox that it came mm -hmm. in. <laughs> I'm not sure, not sure about that. But look, when we talk about startups, the, the buzzword we hear you know, is potential, isn't it? So what is it going to take to, to scale up, to replace those hundreds of millions of plastic sachets, containers, all of those things that you're hoping your, your invention is going to solve, solve the problem of? It's been a very exciting journey, um, going from the lab and proving that it can happen to now having some scale. Um, last year was the first year that we made a million units of something. Um, we made a million units of like those takeaway uh, containers for food. And this year we've multiplied our manufacturing capacity by 50. So we could be potentially bring to the market 50 million units. And from there, you can see how it's very easy to start replicating this in other geographies. So in a way, the scalability is now demonstrated. Um, we dropped the price point to start to be competitive with some of the other bioplastics that are used that typically aren't 
naturally biodegradable. They only biodegrade in a human controlled environment. So we're really starting to be competitive on price as well. Um, so now the only blocking points is companies making that switch, taking a little bit of like, uh, like a, a pioneering attitude towards this problem because it's very easy for them to keep on pushing on the market the same stuff. Um, and also uh, making sure that the legislation is encouraging people to make those kind of like choices and not just uh, like cut corners for a few more years because we have a, a urgent need to change um, and we have to tackle all of the greenwashing that is happening in this space that makes uh, a lot of uh, half good solutions pretend to be the full thing and that actually hurts people who really try to be the like the, the, the maximum on sustainability. So you want to get businesses on board, you want regulation to be in place, you, you want, want people to start believing in this. I mean, do you think that the world takes this problem seriously enough or is it all talk, no action? I think we are at a, uh, like a turning point. I think for too long it's been very easy to dismiss. Uh, I think now the pressure from consumers who are facing the like like the impact of climate change, of like seeing the pollution kind of like growing um, in nature is starting to really have an effect on uh, the people, the brands who put out those products. You can see a lot of like ambitious starters and kind of like, uh, like big announcements from those companies to say that by a certain time, 2030, 2050, whenever, like they will be completely kind of like transition to a, a sustainable solution. Now is the time to deliver it. So I think that like there's still a little bit of like um, a gap between those commitments and where we are today. But I think that things like the Earthshot price are a real chance to show that it's now a real kind of like industrial scalable solution. So there's really no uh, like reason not to engage and not to make that change. It's really ready now for, for action. There's no reason not to engage, you say, but do you think that the next generation has that drive to push forward and, and, and solve the, the, the climate change challenge? I think, unfortunately, the, like, yeah, like the rest of the population doesn't have as much of the drive as the, the new generation. There's definitely like, uh, such a good understanding of what's at stake for, for, for the people who will be around this planet for the next kind of like, uh, 70, 80 years. So we, we, we need to... Um, like follow their instincts more. I think that there's kind of like definitely a lot of uh, resistance from the the older kind of like generation to keep on doing the thing that has been working so far. But uh, we have an urgent need to act. You mentioned the Earthshot Prize. So congratulations for for winning that. So how are you going to to spend that money? What's it going to be used for? What does it mean to you and your team that you've won that award? So it's a, it's an amazing kind of like achievement for the team because there are so many different, uh, crises out there and people working on incredible solutions. So to be selected as one of the winners is, is, is really incredible. Um, and, and we're really trying to make the most of this opportunity. As you mentioned, there's a million pounds. So that's a huge, uh, like way of accelerating the R and D efforts that we, that we have at Mapla, uh, grow a, a team of chemists, engineers, designers pushing the limits of what's possible to be easy. Let's remember that plastic is a, a hundred year head start on what we're doing. There's been billions and billions spent on making it the ubiquitous material that is around. So uh, we really need to double down our kind of like research efforts on understanding how to leverage these materials better. Um, so that's really where uh, that like million pounds is going to go. But beyond the million pounds, what's really incredible with the Earthset price is that 
There's a whole network of support. Uh, there is a global alliance of like tens of companies that are really trying to make the impact of these uh, finalists and those winners uh, grow as quickly as possible. Um, with the the level of recognition of uh, having yeah, Prince William kind of like endorsing personally the solution, and sometimes this is what people take uh, like uh, notice of when there is somehow someone's like uh, a celebrity endorsing something. This is when you read a wider range of the population and just the people who really care about sustainability. And I think that's a that's a very big important step uh, for reaching a more mainstream adoption of, of solutions like this. Pierre Paslier, pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. You can watch every episode of The Agenda in full on CGTN Europe's YouTube channel. And for exclusive extra content from me, my guests and the rest of the team, don't forget to check out at The Agenda Show on TikTok. Coming up soon on The Agenda. We'll talk global economics with former head of the ECB, Jean-Claude Trichet. But for now, from me, Juliette Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.